In two weeks, I'm going to be teaching on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Imminent means it could happen any moment. And the return we're going to talk about is what is called the rapture. So I'm going to talk about it in two weeks. The question is, is are you ready? Are you ready for the return of Christ? We're walking through this little book called First Thessalonians. <clears throat> and this little book is filled with instructions about the return of Christ. It's also filled with instructions of how to live today in light of his return. Very, very powerful little, little, little book. But today is interesting as Paul turns and it gets very specific. It's interesting because in preparation for the return of Christ, it involves being sexually sanctified. Sexually sanctified. Now, I don't know if you saw the PG-13 signs as you're coming in today. Those signs do not mean that no one should hear this under the age of 13. In fact, I want preteens to hear this. And I just put those signs out there to help parents uh, to let you know that's going to be a little more sensitive today. But also to prepare you for maybe a, a further conversation you may have um, with, with, with your kids. Uh, this phrase, I strongly, strongly believe um, today that one of the most powerful testimonies, most powerful witness, most powerful advertisement for Jesus is a believer that a believer can have in our sex-craved culture is to live with sexual self-control. One of the most powerful testimonies that a believer can have today in our out-of-control sexual culture is to live with sexual self-control. Now, the message today is for people who say they are followers of Jesus, period. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, there's no judgment from me to you. Uh, there's no, 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 none from me. But I encourage you to listen if you're not a follower in the room or online um, but I'm just going to warn you, what I'm going to teach may sound crazy, may sound weird, and absolutely makes no sense if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you that when Paul wrote to a, a little church in Greece, but under the Roman authority and empire and that culture, the people who read it for the first time or the people who weren't followers of Jesus then, when they heard about it, they thought it was crazy. They thought it was weird. <laughs> they thought it was completely confusing. It made no sense. But the truth of the matter is this, is that our culture's out-of-control uh, out perspective on sex is extremely similar to the Roman culture that was a culture completely addicted to sex. And it didn't work then, and it is not working today. So hopefully everyone will listen, but if you're a believer, this applies to you with no exceptions. Go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we've talked the last two weeks uh, the, on the two main themes that that Paul talked about pretty much in every chapter. The, the, the two main themes of uh, persecutions coming, be prepared, and then how, how are we to live today? 
in light of God's return. So I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. We talked about verse 1 and 2 last Sunday. Paul says this, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, that means believers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the, in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. What? Please, please God with your life. Do it more and more. Verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Then he starts with this. It is God's will, which means this is what God wants. A lot of people are like, well, what does God want in my life? And, and sometimes we think it's vague. We think it's, it's not really clear. No, it's extremely clear. Paul says this. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, colon, meaning let me explain what that is, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you, meaning it is God's will, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter, sexual sanctification, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you about. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, does not even reject the pastor who's pre preaching this, but rejecting God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, if you're taking notes, the central point is this, quite simply but very clearly, sexual purity is precious and personal with God. Sexual purity is precious to God. And it is personal with God. It's precious because God invented it. God created this whole thing of sex given as a wedding gift to a husband and wife in, in, in a union called marriage. It is precious to God. He is very protective of what he created. And it is also personal. It is personal because in this passage, it says, he says, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. We're talking about sexual sins. It's almost like in this passage, it takes sexual sins and put it in its own special category. God says, if you, if you commit this, these acts, I will punish. It's just a matter of when. No one's going to get a, you know, get out of punishment card. Why? Because sexual purity is precious to God, and it is personal with him. It is very personal with him. You, you see this picture all, all, through the, all through the Bible. In the Old Testament, God, with the nation of Israel, was like, you need to follow me. You don't have any other gods. And when they went after false idols and false gods, God attributed it as if, as the, the spouse and nation of Israel as the other spouse, that they were running after harlots. They were running after prostitutes. And he took it personal. Like, you're, like I, I, I'm loving you, I'm giving you this, and then you're, you're, you're having sex outside of our marriage. 
In the New Testament, God gives very clear instructions. In our culture, we think that they think that God is, you know, doesn't like sex and, and sex is dirty. With God, it's like, no, it's a gift. In the confines of a husband-wife relationship in the New Testament, it says, wives, your body is not your own. It belongs to your husband. Husbands, your body is not your own. It belongs to your wife. And you need to give your body to your spouse because they have needs. What are they talking about? Sexual needs. And don't withhold sex from your spouse. Yes, it's in the Bible. You should read the Bible more. He says that you can have a time of you're not going to, you know, for fasting or whatever, but then it, say, it says in Scripture, New Testament, now then go back to having sex because you don't want your, your spouse to stumble, be tempted by somebody else. And in, in, the, in the New Testament, God is saying in heaven, one of the mile markers in the new heaven and new earth is that there is going to be a marriage between Jesus and his bride, his followers of Jesus. So this whole idea of sexual purity, it is precious in the sight of God, and it is personal whenever we defame or abuse or misuse the wedding gift that God created. Now, prior to a wedding, all sorts of things happen. Uh, first of all, there's a commitment. You know, somebody said, will you? And they answered yes. And, and I hope that part of that box check is that you get premarital counseling so you can get investment into your marriage and how, how you can work through problems because you will have problems. You will have conflict, how to resolve conflict, how to communicate, you know, all that. Hopefully that's part of the pre-wedding process. And then there's all the details and all the boxes got to be checked. You got to order this and reserve that, da 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 It drives you stressed. I'm in premarital counseling with a couple and they're like, we're really stressed. I went, that's normal. That's what happens, right? But then as on the eve of the wedding, some, not all, but some have like bachelor parties, bachelorette parties, and some, not all, have a mindset of, hey, this is your last day of freedom. You know, this is your last vestige of being a single, so man, go out and party and get loose, get happy, get crazy, and some, not all, but some bachelor parties and bachelorette parties, there's lots of alcohol, there's drunkenness, crazy behavior, and going to strip clubs, bringing in strippers. And in some, not all, those parties, sexual acts take place that is not with the, the, the spouse as husband and wife. It's with somebody else. And then they have the wedding. Imagine Jesus as a groom, returning for his bride, only to find his followers, his bride, having no sexual self-control. I find it really interesting, preparing for the return of Christ. God is, through Paul, is saying, if you're a follower of mine, be sanctified. Right there in the passage, be sanctified. Sanctified means that you are dedicated to God and you're set apart for God in all sorts of areas of your life. So in this situation, it is God's will. I want you to be sanctified. 
Avoid, in the Greek that word means to be far from sexual immorality. Not flirting with it, not close to it. Avoid it like a plague. Avoid sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is a very broad Greek word. It's called porneia. That's where we get the word pornography from. It is any, any, any sexual activity outside a husband-wife marriage union. Period. It's such a very broad Greek meaning that includes any sexual activity outside of a husband and wife that God has ordained. And inside that, God has ordained, have sex, have sex often, have, be passionate. And you, just, you really should study your Bible more. I mean, it's really clear. But be sanctified. Avoid sexual immorality. Learn to control your own body in a way that is holy. What does that mean? That with God, our sexual sanctification is holy to him. It is honorable. That means our sexual sanctification is honorable to other people that we touch. It is honorable to our spouse. It is honorable to our future spouse. It is honorable to our friends, to our coworkers, to our testimony. It's holy in the sight of God, and it's honorable to people that we live with if we're sexually sanctified and have self-control. He says, not in passionate lust, like those who do not know God. He's talking to his followers, don't act like them, which triggers a couple questions in this passage. First question is this, as a follower of Jesus, am I living in light of his return? Am I living in the area of my sexuality Am I living in light of his return, like we talked about last Sunday, chapter 4, verse 1, live in order to please the Lord, make him proud. Are we going to be surprised and then embarrassed that he arrived? What condition will Jesus find his bride? Are we living in light of his return? The second question is this. Well, then how far is too far? Being a youth pastor for 20 years, I answered this question a lot. I had these series that I had often called Waiting, Dating, and Mating. And a youth group attendance, you know, went higher. And parents freaked out. When I was a youth pastor here in the 90s, I had a, I had a mom and dad call me as they you know, saw the advertisements of Waiting, Dating, and Mating. And and they set up an appointment in my office, and, and they were they're great, great, great family, but pretty conservative. And they sat in my office, and they were all nervous, and they were fidgeting, and they were kind of talking. And the more they talked, I realized why they wanted to meet with me and, and about this series and how uncomfortable they were. And I stopped the meeting. I said this, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I am not going to tell the students how, how to have sex. And they went, oh, okay, gosh, thank you. Oh, it makes me feel better. Said, no, I'm going to talk about biblical principles of waiting and then dating and, yes, mating after you're married. But how far is too far? <clears throat> A lot of people think, well, the line is just don't have sex with somebody that's not your spouse. Well, Paul has an answer to that question. He says in, in verse 6, he said, in this matter of sexual sanctification, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage 
of a brother or sister. It's talking about another Christian. No one should wrong. That's where we get the word trespass. Like you're out of bounds. And then take advantage, or take advantage. Let me, he's being very clear. Take advantage. That meaning means defraud. So how far is too far? Defrauding. Stepping out of bounds and defrauding. Now there's several meanings of the word defraud in the context of sexual activity. Here's the definition of defraud. It's teasing somebody, right? Teasing to having more. It's teasing to wanting more. I'm going to say this, I'm going to do this, you know, I'm going to be flirting, I'm going to be talking, I'm going to, you know, be dressing a certain way. I want to tease someone to have more that doesn't belong to them, and I want to tease them that they not only, they want to have more, they want more. Unpack it a little more clearly. It's this. It's creating or encouraging sexual tension for wanting what is sinful. That is defrauding. Now I'm gonna flirt with someone who's not my spouse. I'm gonna tease, I'm gonna have certain conversations, I'm gonna talk a certain way, and I'm, I'm either creating or encouraging there be a sexual tension. There's an attraction, but there's a sexual tension. And one or both parties begins to have a desire to want what is sinful. So with that, there needs to be some defraud boundaries, if you're wise, because purity begins in the heart, not the head. Purity begins in the heart. But here's some boundaries that I think are super helpful so you're not crossing into defrauding and taking advantage. First of all, we've got to change it. We have to make sure that we have the, the right attitude, that this person is someone's spouse or someone's future spouse. So I better have an attitude how I'm going to treat them. That, that's where it starts. It also includes the clothes we wear. <laughs> We're going to be advertising, you know, things that don't belong to you. But we're given a lot of sneak previews. Activities we choose. Hey, we'll go do this. We know that if we do that activity, get in that environment, it's going to be very tempting. Boundaries, uh, I don't think we're going to even get close to that. And even the words we speak, enticing, flirting, seductive words. So how far is too far? Are, are, uh, so, many, so many people believe, well, you know, there's the line of sexual, you know, intercourse and just, you know, everything just right up to that line. If you cross that line, okay, it's sinful. But other than that, it's free game. And Paul was like, uh, no, no, the line is back here. If all, be honor, holy in God's sight, honorable to everybody else. And the line is don't defraud or take advantage of somebody. And it's for your own personal gratification. That's the line. And that's going to help us avoid sexual Immorality. Stay far, far from it. I always told my teenagers back in the day, is this, if you're asking how far is too far, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. Now, when I'm studying this, I don't know how it happened. I can't even remember, but my studying took a a tour uh, in the direction of understanding the impact in the Roman culture of what Paul was teaching 
And there's this book by the name of Kyle Harper who wrote Slavery in the, the Late Roman World. And he did not only talked about slavery, he talked about the whole culture, the Roman culture. Now, let, let me describe to you, and in many ways, it, it, it's, as, a, as our world today, it's very close. But the Roman culture had become so degraded sexually in the first century. I mean, it's so degraded. The society that was completely addicted to sex, absolutely completely addicted to sex, sexual acts in the first, uh, first century were often committed publicly. They weren't trying to shield it, make it private, don't you know, cover up you know, for kids. It was pretty much in public. It was like, hey, I want to, you want to, there's grass right there, let's go. And they would. That's, that's how degraded that the culture was. Also in this culture, this, this, this Roman culture viewed sex as just a part of nature and their mindset was you really can't fully control yourselves and so it was like acceptable to not have any self-control because of their mind thought, well, because it's such part of nature that we can't really control ourselves very much like animals, you know, in heat. That's the way humans are. It's, you know, that's just the way it is. So there's no boundaries when it came to sexual activity. Homosexuality was accepted. In fact, Emperor Nero. <laughs> Thank you. That was God, give me a wink. Like, keep going, buddy. <laughs> keep going. Emperor Nero um, married two young boys. Unfaithfulness in marriage was completely the norm. And they had, you know, they had a pathetic view of women, so it was like uh, completely acceptable for, for married men to be unfaithful and, you know, wives, well, you know, come on. You know, it was looked down upon. And so a married man would get married and have children, and the purpose there was to extend the family name and the legacy, but it was completely acceptable, like if you had slaves to sleep with slaves, and they had concubines because, you know, hey, I got needs and they need to be met, and, and the view of the wife was pretty low, but it was like normal, you know, it's like that song, The Sexual Revolution in Our, in our Country, Several decades ago, it was like, if you're not with the one you love, then just love the one you're with. That, that was the mindset in the Roman culture. Then they, they made a law that adultery for, wit, for women was illegal. Adultery for women was illegal. So a lot of the upper class women, to continue their promiscuity, they, they filed for a public prostitute. And they're like, well, if it's illegal, that's not illegal but uh, I want to just keep fooling around, so I'll get actually paid for it. This is the culture in which Jesus chose to birth his church. This is the culture which God said, I'm going to start my church. This was the atmosphere. And the crazy thing was is that the early Christians heard the teachings of Paul Romans and Corinthians and Thessalonians about sexual immorality. The crazy thing was is Christians bought into it. 
And they actually said, we're going we're gonna to do this. Paul talks about this is where you used to be, but you're not that way anymore because of the blood of Christ and his grace. And the Christian church, although persecuted, said, we're going to do this. We're going to obey what God has said. So husbands began to become faithful to their wives. Wives began to be faithful to their husbands. Christians stood out in this area. Of course, they're mocked, ridiculed, like, you're what? Faithful? What? You crazy? Yeah, because that's what Christ would want. But slowly, over time, it began to impact a perverted culture. They saw a contrast. They were laughing and mocking Christians, but respect was rising. Because in that Roman culture, they saw how empty, just rampant sexual activity was. And they looked over at Christian marriages and went, wait a second. They're healthier and happier than I am. And respect for Christians in the area of uh, sexual ethics rose. Rose. There's a famous person by the word of Galen mentions this about Christians. He says, you know what? They are so far advanced in self-discipline and their intense desire to its, uh, attain moral excellence that they are in no way inferior to true philosophers. Philosophy was like huge, huge, huge. And they were looked down upon. He was like, uh, no, just look at their intense self-discipline. And their strong desire for moral excellence, no, they're not inferior to true philosophers. It's working. The Christian wives took this so seriously that here's a quote that I found. Uh, Some guy that said this, what woman these Christians have. That's right, exactly. (laughs) Like, wow. Okay, we we don't get their standards. It makes no sense, but... Wow. And Christian ethics began to rise in a very debased culture in three primary, primary areas. It began to impact the Roman culture. First of all, sanctity of human life. Human life didn't mean anything. So infants who were born many times, if they weren't male, they were just put outside. Christians would pick them up and take them and feed them and raise them. Elderly people were discarded, like you mean nothing to us. You don't add any profit to our economy and to our, our you know, community and stuff. And elderly people were just left out. Christians would take them and care for them and love them. The sanctity of human life slowly was increasing. Charity and health care. Uh, in that culture that if you got sick or you got hurt, a bad injury, you were basically kicked to the curb in that society. Like, well, I guess you're, you're not useful anymore. No problem, we don't care about you. And it was Christians who went and met with people and you know, bound up their wounds and helped them. And it was eventually Christians starting the first hospitals because of God made people so there's sanctity of human life and we need to love them. And it was Christians who lifted the care and health care of people. But then also the third area was in the area of, of sexual ethics. And how they lived and how they 
they were, they were proving that human beings can have self-control. They, they were displaying that, you know, as, as Paul talks about, that the, the marriage bed is honorable, should not be debased. They're like, no, no, no. It, it is holy. It is between a husband and wife and the privacy of their bedroom. That was like radical. And Christian ethics began to rise. There was a, a what, we, what we would call a governor in, in, the, in the, what we would call Turkey today. His name was Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger. Uh, his father died at Pompeii. My wife and I, we were in Rome a number of years ago. We went, and we were like, we were disgusted with Pompeii. I just thought, oh, this would be cool. Mount Vesuvius blew. It just killed this town, like, super fast. And it was, it was such a perverted culture. So his dad died there. But Pliny the Younger was uh, kind of the governor in the area of Turkey. And, and he, it was new to him to have interactions with these Christians and and he didn't really know what to do with them. And they, he heard that uh, we were supposed to kill them because they're not going to, you know, their loyalty is not with, with Caesar and, you know, some God named Jesus. And, and so they were killing Christians. And, and so Pliny the Younger wrote to Emperor Trajan going, um, kind of new at this. Um, so I, I did some investigating of who are these Christians and what, what are they all about. And it was almost like this mindset of, and, and why are we killing them? And he writes this, this is his words to the emperor. He says, they, Christians, here's what I've learned. They were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn. You thought this service was early, okay? They, they meet together on a fixed day before dawn and they sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God. And then they bind themselves by oath, like before they left for their day. They bind themselves by oath not to do some crime, not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. You say, hey, Emperor Trajan, this is what I found that kind of meet. Could you imagine before you left a service every week, okay, everybody, we're gonna promise. We're gonna be kind. We're gonna work hard. We're not gonna steal. We're not going to sleep with someone else that's not our spouse. We're going to maintain trust. We're going to give trust. Have a good week. And so he's kind of like, this whole group of people is kind of strange. But he writes to him because he's concerned of like, I'm supposed to start killing them. Well, there's a lot of them now. Goes on to say this. He says, for the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially, here's the problem, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. You're talking about, I gotta kill lots of people. For the con uh, contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. Christians are now everywhere. And they're helping our community. Crazy thing. They, they promise to be good and not unfaithful. What happened over time eventually, and there's always been 
evil and sexual sins and stuff, but eventually the Roman Empire slowly changed and Christian ethics and sexual ethics rose and they began to forsake the debauchery of their sexual depravity. Because again, they're looking at Christians going, they may be weird, but their marriages are healthier and they are happier. I find it very interesting that Paul is telling these group of believers at Thessalonica and preparing for Christ's return, very specifically says, it is God's will for you to be sexually pure. Why? Because sexual purity is precious and it is personal with God. Could it be that God is warning us again today that his return is imminent, I'm going to talk about it in a couple of weeks, and that Jesus wants to find his bride with self-control in the area of sexual purity that is attractive. Even though they think we're weird, but it's attractive when they look, and that marriage is healthier and happier. What are they doing? Are you standing out? Are you living in light of his return? So when people make fun of you, for I'm going to save sex before I, until I get married. You're like, what? Stand strong, keep your head up high. You mean when you go out to sea, you're not going to, nope, I'm not going to dis, dis, dishonor my spouse, my God and my spouse. What? No one will know. Nope. Make that stand, keep your head high. Because they may mock you, but deep down they may be respecting you and looking at your life going, man, you got something I don't got. And it could draw people to Christ before he comes back. Dear God, thank you for putting very specifically in this little book what you want, what is your will, what is your desire from your followers as we prepare for your return. God, I pray that we would be living our lives in this area of sexual self-control so so well that you are pleased with us, that you're proud of us, and that we would draw other people to you because of our choices. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, we say, amen. If you're a guest today in the room, we have a, a gift for you at guest services. We're also going to have some discussion questions. If I uh, made it uncomfortable for some of your parents uh, in the room or at home with kids, I just set you up for further conversations. May God bless you. Hope to have you next week for our series. May God bless you. Have a great week. Yeah.